This afternoon we'll be dealing with the second petition in the Lord's Prayer, which is your kingdom come. So for our scripture readings, we'll first turn to 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 20, where David speaks about God's kingdom and acknowledges God as king over all. So that's 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 20. This is God's word. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord, God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to give, it is to make great, and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the King. And now we'll turn to Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. Here we receive a picture of what God's kingdom will look like when it has truly come. It's Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. This is the Apostle John's revelation that he received. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might 
be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So far. As was mentioned earlier this afternoon, we take as our confessional reading from Lord's Day 48, which deals with the second petition in the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Day 48, that's page 561 in our Book of Praise. The question there is, what is the second petition? Your kingdom come, that is, so rule us by your word and spirit, that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. So far. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 48 speaks about a kingdom. It would seem that the times of kings and kingdoms, of castles and knights, are all far in the distant past. And indeed, in the centuries since we've advanced to democracies and republics, there has been much progress, and yet there are still wars. Freedom and democracy can be questionable at times, and the reality is that the future is still uncertain. No, we will not find our hope in earthly dominions or earthly kingdoms. But we may look forward to something much better, God's kingdom. Yes, Christ teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come. That's our theme for this sermon. Christ teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come. And so we pray first for our personal submission, second for the church's protection, and third, for his enemies' destruction. So in the first place, we pray for our personal submission. There's typically two ways of thinking about God's kingdom. First, we can define a kingdom as the territory and people over which a king reigns. And with this definition, it's easy to see that God's kingdom includes everything. The whole universe, heaven and earth. God is the king and ruler over all because he is the creator of all and all things remain in his control. That's what David confessed in our reading. 
He said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Yes, God even governs the hearts of the wicked. Think of how he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could send the plagues on Egypt. And yet, if God is king over all, then why would Jesus teach us to pray that God's kingdom come? It's because even though God is the king, not everyone submits to him. Not everyone acknowledges him as king. Ever since Adam fell into sin, there has been a rebellion against God. In fact, the Bible even speaks of two kingdoms. A kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. You see, this petition is just like the first one in the Lord's Prayer, which was, Hallowed be your name. In that case, too, we know that God's name is already holy. It doesn't need to be made holy. And yet, what we're praying for is that God's name would be acknowledged as holy in the world. That it would be treated as holy. And so, in the same way, when we pray that God's rule, that his kingdom would come, We pray that his kingship would be acknowledged in the world. And that's not complete yet. Not everyone serves the Lord willingly. And so in this sense, we refer to God's kingdom as the place over which he is acknowledged as king. Now with that in mind, our tendency would probably be to write Lord's Day 48 like this. Your kingdom come... That is, so rule the wicked by your word and spirit so that they might submit to you. But that's not what it says. No, it says rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. You see, we confess that even though we are citizens of God's kingdom, we're not always loyal to him. In fact, our tendency is to rebel against God's rule in our lives. And so we can ask ourselves this. How much of my life is, is driven by my love for God's kingdom? Or are we more concerned about our own kingdoms and that everything goes according to our plans? Are there maybe areas of our lives that we try to keep outside of God's control and God's rule? Certain areas that we'd prefer he just didn't see. Yes, when we reflect on this, we can see that we are citizens of God's kingdom, but not always very good ones. We became citizens when we were born again. That's in the form for baptism, which says we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. And so we are recreated, but we still need sanctification. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to come, first of all, we pray, Father, please make us better subjects of your kingdom. Help us to more and more submit to your rule. So what does it mean to submit to God's rule? Well, it means more than just obedience. It also means submission in our kingdom service. We are prophets and priests and kings meant to use our gifts and talents in all areas of our life. In our families, in schooling for our children, 
as citizens of this country, in our work. All of this is kingdom life which we need to grow in. So how does God go about that? Well, we confess that God rules us by his word and spirit. It's by his word that we come to know his will. By his word that we come to know our king. And God's word is not just a book of his laws or a list of his rules to follow. No, his word also tells us why we should submit to him. And the first and most important reason is that God is our creator and king. And so he simply deserves our submission. But we also read about him as our gracious and caring king. One who is so merciful that he sent his one and only son to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. So that even though, even while we were still his enemies, fighting for the dark side, you see, it's not that just we were prisoners in the kingdom of darkness. No, even so, he came and gave up his life so that we might be brought into the kingdom of light. We read in Colossians 1 that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Yes, Christ is our Lord and King. And when He ascended into heaven, God gave to Him all authority and power over heaven and earth. So we submit to God because He deserves it, but we also do so out of thankfulness and because our love for our King, and we want to serve Him. And yet, as each of us knows, that will be a losing battle if we try to do that ourselves. It's not like once we entered God's kingdom, we can manage just fine on our own. No, we need God's Word and the Spirit. God doesn't want us to just tick the boxes, to outwardly obey His laws. No, He wants us to willingly submit to him. And that can only happen if the Spirit is at work molding and shaping our hearts, cleansing it from all the darkness that's hiding there. God wants obedience from hearts that love him, hearts that have been transformed by his Spirit. As an illustration of that, think of King David and his mighty men. We read in Chronicles that some of them broke into the enemy camp just so that they could draw some water from the well in David's hometown because he was thirsty. They risked their lives for their king because they loved him that much. They wanted to submit to his rule and to serve him. That's the kind of love and devotion that God wants us to have as his kingdom citizens. And in given all that our perfect and gracious king has done for us, how much more ought we to be willing to submit to him? And so by the Spirit and through the Word, we have work to do as kingdom citizens. We grow in faith and in sanctification by hearing the Word of God. So that means we need to be in his Word. We need to be diligent listening to sermons on Sunday. Not because of whoever is preaching, but because this is God's Word which he brings through the mouths of sinful and weak men. We also need to be diligent in our, family, in our personal devotions. 
Taking time each day to sit down in God's Word and to meditate on it, to pray over it. This is how we grow in faith and obedience. And fathers and mothers, be diligent in your family devotions. Because it's by your leadership and example that your children will see the importance of the Word and grow in their own faith. Yes, brothers and sisters, if we're going to pray that God's kingdom come, then let us be busy in His Word. That as God's own kingdom citizens, we may more and more humble ourselves under His rule. That's where it needs to start. So Lord, rule us by Your Word and Spirit. And in the second place then, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray for the church's protection. Now when we speak of the church and God's kingdom together, we need to be careful that we see the distinction between them. The kingdom of God and the church are not the same thing. God's kingdom, as we've been speaking about it, includes all of heaven and earth that acknowledge him as king. But the church is only a part of that. The church is the visible embodiment of the kingdom. It's the part of the kingdom that's clearly seen in the world. And it's through the church that the kingdom of God penetrates into the world. God uses the church to advance his kingdom. Perhaps we can think of God's kingdom as having a big wall around it with a gate. And there are keys to enter through that gate. Well, it's the church that has been given the keys for the gate into the kingdom. Maybe the catechism students remember what those keys are. The preaching of the gospel and church discipline. And it's by these keys that the kingdom of God is opened or closed. It's by the preaching of the gospel that a person receives faith. And it's through church discipline that the kingdom is kept pure. So the church plays a very important role in God's kingdom. So with that in mind, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we also pray for the preservation of the church, which holds the keys to the kingdom. And we'll address this more in the third point, but the reality is that the church faces many dangers and threats. Satan knows the importance of the church in God's kingdom. Ever since the church began, there has been threats from within and threats from outside. We can think of the danger of legalism, that people believe they're saved simply by checking boxes. There's danger from unbelief and self-righteousness. And then there's temptations and pressures from the culture around. Perhaps one danger we can think about more closely is the danger of division. Division in the church does great damage to both the members within and the reputation that the church has with the world that's watching. And we need to consider this carefully, especially after these last few years. Scripture warns against this danger. The Apostle Paul wrote to the very divided church at Corinth, telling them that they were being worldly. He appealed to them to put aside their quarrels and divisions. And Jesus, too, repeatedly called his listeners to love one another. 
Yes, in God's church, we are called to humility and gentleness and patience and love towards each other. There's not just personal pride at stake here, but the church, the bride of Christ and her reputation in the world. And yet, as Christ taught us, we cannot accomplish these things ourselves. And so we pray, Lord, protect your church. For the sake of your kingdom, preserve her. As we confess, it's not only the preservation of the church that we pray for, but also her increase. Too often it's made to seem as if the church can't both be preserved and at the same time increase. As if preserving her and insulating her comes at the cost of bringing outsiders in. Or as if evangelism and outreach will necessarily bring in heresies and worldly influences. No, it ought to be our prayer that God both continues to increase his church and her influence in the kingdom for the advancement of his kingdom. Because it is God who gives the growth. Ever since the beginning of Acts, Jesus has not just been sitting idly in heaven, but he has been at work gathering, defending, and preserving a church for himself. And so this is first of all a matter of prayer. But as kingdom citizens, this is also responsibility for us. We are ambassadors of the kingdom every time we go out into the world or to our workplace. The way we act among our colleagues and friends reflects on the kingdom of God. God works through us and through our interactions in order to bring new sheep into his fold, into the kingdom of light. Yes, it's the church who holds the keys to the kingdom. And it's by her faithful preaching of the word that, and by faithful church discipline and faithful living that God brings people into his kingdom. But in all of this, let us remember that the church is not just an important tool in the kingdom, a means to an end. No, the church is the bride-to-be of the king. She is Christ's dearly beloved. So let us take care in the way that we see and speak about Christ's bride, the way that we speak about those he's placed in leadership. The church is the bride-to-be of the king himself. Let us also not be afraid, as if the church is fragile and prone to collapse. Now, Jesus told Peter upon his confession that Christ was the Lord, that on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yes, our prayer that God's kingdom come is not a desperate prayer. God will preserve and increase his church because the bridegroom, the king, has already promised. And then finally, we pray for the destruction of God's enemies. We've seen that there are two kingdoms. Yes, God's rule and authority extend over all of Satan's kingdom. But in terms of where loyalties lie, there are two kingdoms that are opposed to each other. And they cannot coexist. Only one can prevail. 
on one hand, we can recognize that this is no even battle. A fallen angel stands no chance against his own eternal God and creator. But on the other hand, this doesn't mean that the devil is going to go without a fight. And so maybe that means that we can expect someday to face fierce persecution. That's possible. But the devil has also been around for a very long time and he is cunning. He also works to lull us to sleep. Think of the kinds of messages and claims that the world makes. They're tolerant of everyone. They're concerned for the environment. They're always advocating for the poor and marginalized. And it's hard to argue those things. At least those are the things that they say over and over. But we need to see this clearly. The world is directly opposed to God. Just like the Tower of Babel, they'd like nothing to do with him or his rule. No, the devil is not tolerant or concerned for God's creation or the well-being of the poor and marginalized. The devil hates God and his only aim is to drag as many people over to his side as he can. There's nothing nice or tolerant about it. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The mistake we can make here, though, is only thinking about how this affects us. Hatred against us, government policies that affect us, persecution against us. But the Catechism reminds us that most of all, the world is attacking God himself. And that should grieve us the most. That the world is set against our king. The one they attack so relentlessly is our good and gracious king. But one of the primary ways the devil does that is by attacking God's word. We need to realize that the word of God is the foundation of the church. The devil knows that if the word is undermined, then so is the church. If the church abandons the word or waters it down or grows ashamed of it, then the devil has won. And so he makes all kinds of attempts to weaken our confidence in it. So that we're left with lingering questions about God's word. Questions like, why would a good God direct Israel to wipe out all the Canaanites? Men, women, and little children. Or another question, doesn't the evidence that science have for evolution seem pretty convincing? Or what about miracles? Can they really exist? Yes, Satan knows the importance of the word, and so he twists it, and he twists people's understanding of it so that they come up with all sorts of fancy interpretations. But if that is an issue then let us ask ourselves, do you treasure God's word? Do you realize its importance? As ambassadors and soldiers of the kingdom of God, is the word something that you hold dear? Paul described the word as our primary weapon, the sword of the spirit. So this is something we must be careful not to throw away. We need to be familiar with it, always ready. No, these two kingdoms cannot 
coexist. God's kingdom will not and cannot come in fullness until the kingdom of darkness is destroyed and conquered. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray for the destruction of God's enemies. We pray for God once for all to cast out sin and evil and the devil. But again, this is not a desperate prayer. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray for the return of our King. And our King, Christ Jesus, is described in Revelation 19 as the rider of a white horse who in righteousness judges and makes war. It says his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. And following him are the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who we're waiting for. And he will come. Paul promises his readers at the end of his letter to the Romans, saying the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yes, the victory is assured. We'll sing from hymn 53 in a few minutes. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. This is our sure hope because it does not depend on us. Christ who promised is faithful and he will surely return. And then God will be all in all. He will be all to all peoples in all places. His kingdom will be all. There will be no opposition. And all will be loyal to God. And so we pray like Christ taught us. Your kingdom come. Teach us to be better citizens, humbling ourselves under your rule. Preserve and increase your church who holds the keys to the kingdom. And destroy your enemies until they are no more. Until your kingdom comes when we will all stand side by side from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and the Lamb, singing praises to our God and King. Never again will God's kingdom citizens hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen.